With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following episode of Bread for the People is brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run virtual bakery that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. Head on over to SideHustleBread.com for more information, upcoming appearances, and merchandise. My name's Jim Serpico, and this... Should I start with my name? Or should I start with this is Bread for the People? Do you like it like this? Welcome to Bread... Or do you like it like this? Welcome. Ready? Welcome to Bread for the People. Mine... Is there a script? Welcome to Bread for the People. I'm Jim Serpico, streaming in from the International Institute for the Advancement of Sourdough Science and Research of Cleveland, Ohio. I'd like to say I, I now officially, whether Tom considers me a friend or not, I consider Tom a friend. Tom is, and I'm talking about Tom Kakuza, the professor of sourdough. He is the first person in the history of Bread for the People to appear twice Tom, thank you for joining me for a second time on Bread for the People. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be your first repeat guest. Um, I am not just blowing smoke up your ass. You, <laughs> you really do have the greatest sourdough channel on all social media. You're providing so much information for the public for free. If there's anything I need to look up, I'll go right to your page and search it on your YouTube page. I've learned so much from you since I started baking sourdough. I want to thank you for that. If you guys haven't checked out Tom's pages, The Sourdough Journey on Instagram, especially on YouTube, he's got lengthy, detailed videos, instructional videos, and he deals a lot with the science of sourdough baking, which really helps me because I don't deal with the science. I rely on Tom to deal with the science for me. <laughs> um, how you doing today? I'm good, and I really appreciate that feedback. I, I also have the Sourdough Journey website, which has the Sourdough Encyclopedia, which has another 300 or so frequently asked questions, additional videos. There's a lot more content out there now as well. So between the YouTube channel, the website, and my Instagram posts, you can pretty much uh, catch me those three ways. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it is incredible. I've been especially preparing for this interview, going through a number of the videos, most recently getting involved and in studying what you had to say on pH. Yeah. And I would love to dive into that. I do have some questions, okay? Sure. So you, you get into the, you review a bunch of pH meters and testers, and there's a giant range of prices. Yep. You know, everything for as little as $15 up to two to $300. Right. And I gather it's very important. I understand that water starts at about a, a seven on the scale. Right. And then your sourdough starter is about three. And once you start adding flour, you get to the mid range of five. But here's what I don't understand yet. Yeah. What? And I know there's an answer. I really don't know it. What is the danger of having a dough mixture that's too acidic, acidic or if you let your bulk ferment go on too long, it becomes too acidic? What is the problem? Basically, two things. The way I think about it is 
almost everything bad that can happen with sourdough is caused by acidity. And there are, there are two main things. If your starter is too acidic to begin with, and you mix that into your dough, when your dough starts fermenting, two things are happening. The yeast is trying to create carbon dioxide to rise the loaf. And the lactic acid bacteria, which comes with that in the starter, you can't separate the two, the lactic acid bacteria creates acid. And those two things happen in parallel. The acid will always outrun the yeast. There are 100 more cells of lactic acid bacteria than there are yeast cells. And if the acid grows faster than the yeast, it chokes off the yeast. The yeast can't create carbon dioxide. It literally, it's like if, if you were climbing Mount Everest, like every step you take, there's less and less oxygen as you get higher. That's kind of what happens with the yeast. The yeast can still be the same number of cells and it can be, you know, a really strong starter. But as the acid builds up, you're, you're just, you're, you're choking it off and you lose the ability to rise the loaf. You say really strong starter and I'm also getting confused here. Cause, and let me, let me ask you this. Yep. So I do my bakings, my big bakes on Fridays and Saturdays. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I'm out there selling. And the last thing I want to do after a long day is come home and feed my starter. Yep. And I usually don't feed it on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm having a good week, I get in there on Monday and I start working yeah. it because I know I'm going to be mixing with it on Wednesday. Yeah. But there are times I miss the, the Monday. Yeah. And I could tell that what's usually a thick starter. Yep. When I use it, which I, I consider, and I could be wrong about this, my strong starter, it mm-hmm. starts to get a little more liquidy. Yep. And as I feed it, it's starting to thicken up and get to where I need it to be. And if I miss the Monday, I'm going to feed it twice on Tuesday. I'm going to feed it in the morning and at night so that Wednesday morning it's there. Now, if, if it's watery, is it acidic? Yes. Okay. Because that's the, that's the second thing that happens with an acidic starter. First is it chokes off the yeast. The second thing that it does is, is an acidic starter releases something called the protease enzyme. The protease enzyme is in here. It's in your flour. And when the acidity and or the temperature rise, it's like Pac-Man comes out and starts eating the gluten. It's stimulated by acid. Like if you just poured acid into it, it wakes up all these little Pac-Men. They eat the gluten and that's what causes your starter to get watery. And it's what causes your loaves to overproof. And when you get the flat overproof disaster loaves, that's all triggered by the acidity outrunning the yeast. And there's several different ways it could get to that point. You could start with the perfect strong starter, yeah, but it could just bulk ferment for too long. Exactly. Right. If you just let it go too long, you know, time is the enemy. Eventually, the acid will always produce, you know, more quickly than than the yeast and, and you'll get the overproofed loaf. That's where you turn the corner and the dough starts to collapse. And the other thing that can cause it is the temperature because the Acidity likes a warm temperature, and that protease enzyme that breaks down the gluten, that likes a warm temperature as well. So a lot of times when people bake in the summer, it's really difficult. If you're baking in a warm kitchen, your dough can go sideways in a hurry, especially if you start with an acidic starter because you're starting with more acid to begin with. Like you're, you're already, you're not even putting the yeast and the lactic acid bacteria on the same starting line. You're giving the acid a head start. Right. What about if you do a, a cold ferment? I, you know, tw- my typical cold ferment is 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. And I've done longer, and I, I hear lots of people love to brag about the 72-hour cold ferment. Yeah. But I wonder, do you need to race to shape and bake that and not let a 72-hour sit on the pan too long? Um, it's a good question. There's a couple things kind of wrapped up in there. The long, cool fermentations slow down the acidity and they slow down the protease enzyme. So that's kind of the, that's the mitigating factor that you have. If you have a real warm kitchen and your dough is starting to get out of control, get it in the refrigerator and that will hit the brakes on, on that, that acidity building up. So that's a great way to slow things down and kind of save a runaway batch of dough. When it sits in the refrigerator, like I said, Time is the enemy. You can never actually stop time, and the starter will continue generating the acid. The enzymes will continue breaking down the gluten. So at some point, 
like you just, you can't leave it in there forever. Like 24 hours, like easily you can leave a loaf in the refrigerator for 24 hours, the, the dough before you bake it. You get up to maybe 48 hours, you're kind of cross that optimal point. And then from 48 hours up to 72 hours, you're starting to get a little bit of deterioration in the loaf. It, it tastes great because all that acidity is building up and you get these real super sour, real complex flavored loaves with the super long fermentation. That's why some people like that. But you're always risking deteriorating the dough the longer it's in there. Got it. Now, I, I'm thinking, you. I know you sing, and I, for some reason I thought you played the French horn. Is that not true? No, I play the, I play the piano and guitar, not French horn, and, I, and I'm a singer, yes. Yeah, and I play the trumpet, and maybe we could get a couple other sourdough bakers and start uh, Proteus Enzymes, the band. <laughs> That'd be a great name. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great name. Um, so for you people who don't bake bread, you should tune out now. We are getting into the weeds here with Professor Tom Kakuza. Right off the bat. That's my specialty. <laughs> right off the bat, we covered Proteus enzymes. We just scratched the surface. So we're going to go deeper. So the sour, well, the sour flavor, which you know I'm always struggling with. Yeah. I don't know why. And again, people like my bread and they buy it and no one's saying, uh, uh, occasionally somebody has said it. But I wish I did have control of it and I could make what, it that way. What do they say? Is it too, too sour, not sour enough? What are you trying to accomplish? My bread is not sour. It oh. is definitely a little more, uh, it's got a tinge of sour now that I am pretty much exclusively baking my country loaves with cold fermentation. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, that uh, th people say there's a lot of different ways to make it more sour, but, but the best way is the long, long cold fermentation. That's where you get the real sour flavor from. Now you can, you can boost that a little bit. Some people add rye flour to their... Um, I do. Okay, so, so that helps. I mean, that, that actually, I think the, that tang that people associate with sour, the sourness of sourdough actually is very similar to the taste of rye, or it accentuates it somehow. Um, and then different flours just have, have a different flavor. I mean, you, you can only change the flavor so much kind of within the window of what the bag of flour gives you. So, mm -hmm. so are you still using King Arthur uh, flour for yours? I am. I, I use uh, King Arthur bread flour. However, yeah. I just got a bunch of Sir Lancelot flour, which is a higher protein. Yeah. And what that King Arthur makes. Yeah. For for this uh for the scotchata bread that I'm making, and I mm -hmm. tried it with the sourdough. Mm -hmm. Very different in a great way. Yeah. It made it lighter. Yeah. Right, right. It creates a more open architecture in the crumb because of the, the higher protein. That's what kind of creates that. That's, the, that's what gives you the ability to right. ride taller. And with the higher protein flour, you can leave it in the refrigerator longer because uh -huh. the protease enzyme has more <laughs> gluten to chew on before it'll start to deteriorate the loaf. So, so I'd really push the, the cold fermentation with that and see how long you can go before you start to lose the shape of the loaf. Yeah. So I've only been playing that for two weeks and I was really excited about the results. And actually for the scotchata, which is very similar to focaccia, mm. really surprised about how different the texture in that bread became by using Sir Lancelot yeah. over bread flour. Yeah. And it's probably like, 1% different protein content. I think the the King Arthur bread flour is 12.7% and the Sir Lancelot's maybe 13.5 or 13.7. makes a huge difference. I mean, those numbers seem really close, but yeah, 1% difference in the protein content can materially change the, 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 the shape of the loaf and the feel of the crumb and the mouthfeel and all that. You know, and then my, uh, so I do a lot of sourdough baking and then I, you know, this bread, the uh, scotchata, focaccia, yeah. is instant yeast. Okay. And, and that, I bake pretty much all my bread two different ways. My sourdough is either going to, and I was actually training some people this morning on this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's either a mix and an 11 to 12 hour overnight bulk fermentation in a bucket at room yeah. temperature, which is about 70 degrees. Yeah. Or a six hour bulk ferment, 
24 to 48 hour cold ferment. That's for your sourdough? Those That's are my your sourdough. Methods, yeah. And then for the instant yeast, it's either 90 minutes in the bucket and then about an hour on the pan yeah. or an hour or half hour, let's say. It's a half hour to 40 minutes before I do a stretch and fold and then put it in the refrigerator for 24 hours. Yeah. Now that, that method is so completely different in the instant yeast than just going straight from a bucket to a pan. I couldn't yeah. believe the difference in yeah. the bread. Yeah. Doing so, the cold, the cold ferment. It just made it so much better and changed Total. the texture yeah. so much that I now can only make that bread exclusively by doing the cold ferment. So what is that scacciata? Is that you said it's like a focaccia, so it's a, a flat bread. What else do you add to it? Oil and herbs and stuff? There's nothing. It's very, it is oil, olive oil, but otherwise it's just salt water flour and it's really open and airy. Okay. Yeah. Like, like really open and airy. And that's for your Italian sandwiches. That's for my Italian sandwiches. I bake it in a full sheet pan. Yeah. And it makes for great theater because when you bring it out, you're literally cutting it off. Yeah. The giant square. Yeah. Opening up right there. And you slice it, you slice it down the middle and open it up to make yeah. the sandwich. You don't use a full piece. I see. Yeah. 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 Those uh, sandwiches look great. I've seen those on Instagram. I love sandwiches and I'm like, wow, that's a great looking sandwich. <laughs> the other thing we did today, I have a little demonstration. Wow. You brought props. I have a, this is a live prop. Yeah. So, so uh, this one is King Arthur bread flour. I, I got the Gosney dome for this food trailer I have. And I'm trying to figure out, I don't want to actually use it to make pizzas because yeah. I don't want the workflow and the process of pizza making. And also there's a million pizza makers yeah. now. Yeah. So what we did here, and I got this from the Gosney website actually, although I baked this longer. I baked this till it was 100 degrees internal. What are you holding there I mean, for, I'm sorry, for, the, for the people on the radio? On the radio. This is a demi-baguette. Yes, very nice. Uh, uh, 180 degree internal temperature. Yeah. And it was just pure white, mm. but fully cooked through. And then uh, we put it in the Gosney to finish it a couple yeah. hours later. And it was unbelievable. Yeah. And 60 seconds. Yeah, that's amazing. What temperature does the Gosney get up to? Like eight, eight or 900 degrees or something? Yeah, but we, we, today's experiment was actually on the Gosney rock box. Um, oh. Because the dome's in my truck, which is being retrofitted yep. and finished. But I have the rock box at home, which is the smaller version. I and I turned it down to the lowest temperature I could, which probably is about 550 yeah. degrees. Right. Yeah. For bread. Yeah. I, that sounds about right, for, especially for finishing like that. Yeah. And the other thing I did with this is uh, I put about 4% instant yeast into the mixture of <laughs> sourdough starter. So are you going to sell those baguettes? Uh I am. I, I am trying to be the rolling tartine. Nice. <laughs> I want, I'm selling bread and butter. Yep. Along with the sandwiches. I'm, I mean, I am anchoring, you know, our brand on the fact that it's all our bread. It's not just yep. a sandwich place. So yeah, I'm doing the bread and butter. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's, and are you doing slices of bread if people just want a slice or what? what's the... Not initially, but I, I'm sure that this whole thing's going to, six months from now, yeah. once it's been out on the street, I think it might be a whole different thing. Yeah. Well, think about how much money you could make selling it by the slice. I mean, people will pay $8 for a loaf and you can get 12 slices out of a loaf and sell them for two or three bucks a slice. If somebody's just standing on the street and they want a, a slice of bread and butter, I'd pay a couple dollars for that. I think I... Well, that's, I, why, I'm, that's why I'm making these demis. Yeah. Because this will probably sell for three dollars. Yeah, right. Yeah, you exactly. know, and yeah. I it's don't tough, know. It's tough to make money just selling plain loaves. I mean, you probably know that. You know, you got to either add stuff to them or do something different. Which is why we're doing this cafe on wheels and yeah, trying but, to design. But I understand it's not really a food truck. I saw the picture of it on Instagram. It's a food trailer, right? It's a trailer, and what do you, you tow that behind? I've got a GMC Sierra. Nice. That um, I guess part of me always knew I wanted to move into this and, and got the truck before I, 
I had anything to tell. But in talking to a lot of friends that are in the food truck slash trailer business, they all tell me that you really do want to go trailer. Yeah. Because there's a lot of problems when you're, uh, the mechanical stuff breaks down. Mm. You, you know, yeah, you're, the you're engine so- or whatever, you're, you're out of your kitchen and you can't afford that. Yeah. I, so. I probably call it a food wagon instead of a trailer. <laughs> I think that's a, that's trailer. a good idea. Yeah. I think it's Jim Serpico's food wagon. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I have very, various names. I have, uh, probably on the back, I have these fantasies of painting the Scotchata unit and having like an FBI jacket that says, uh, TSU on it. Nice. I've got the commercial campaign we're going to shoot where I'm dressed up like an FBI guy in the jacket and we show up to a house and the woman's crying, her husband's in bed, he can't get up and we have the thing that he needs and we bring him a scotch out of sandwich and he just jumps to life. So we'll see what happens. Well, I got to ask you the question that I, I can't believe nobody else has asked you, but are you related to the cop, Frank Serpico? Great question. I am not related to the cop. My uncle's... Who uh, I have one uncle who's 92 and another who's uh, about 80, a little over 80. They were cops at the same exact time, mm-hmm. all with the last name Serpico. And yeah. they had a very rough professional life around that time because of that. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. because you're not related, you could use that as, as kind of a, a kitschy marketing idea. Well, you know, I, I'd, I'd put your face on the food wagon like the poster of Al Pacino on the Serpico poster That's with funny. sunglasses well, on. One of the taglines I have, I don't know if you remember the, the movie's tagline was an honest cop. Mm. I have uh, the, one of the taglines I use is an honest sandwich. Uh, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I've got all kinds of uh, <laughs> marketing things going on for this. And, and you know, honestly... I am so excited to be able to shoot content from there. Oh, yeah. Because I'm not, I don't have a good setup to shoot content right now. Yeah. Even though I put out a lot of content, I am not in places that are film friendly. Yeah. Kind of a man so, on the street guy. You know, right now. I think that suits your, your style also. Yeah, definitely. But I'm going to have some cameras in there and have fun with it. Just really have fun with it. And maybe even take it out to do the podcast. Uh, That could be fun. So, all right. We covered a little bit on the pH. Yeah, just to to wrap up, uh, you know, what do you use the pH meters for? Basically, it's like a thermometer. You stick it in the dough and you can tell tell how much acidity there is in the dough. So when I said all the bad stuff happens either in your starter or your dough because of the acidity, the pH meter tells you where it is. I mean, it's as simple as that. It just keeps you out of trouble. If you got dough that's really running away from you. What do you do about it when you find out though? Move quickly. You know, it, like you can, you can test it as you go. So you can see how rapidly the dough is fermenting. So like you said, you know, it starts out at a pH of five. And then during the bulk fermentation process, as the starter is creating the acidity, higher acidity is a lower pH. So you'll see it just like clockwork. It starts dropping to 4.5, 4.25, 4.1. And you pretty much got to shape the dough and, and get it into the refrigerator before it gets to 4.0. So, you know, it's just, it's another tool if you're running a bakery or for some, you know, kind of beginning bakers who don't have the intuition and they want to spend a little money on a piece of technology. It's not foolproof. I wish I could say you just stick it in your dough and it tells you exactly when it's done, but it, it's directionally correct. And, you know, like I said, it, it, it keeps you out of trouble when you have kind of a runaway uh, loaf that's really getting ahead of itself. Mm-hmm. See, I, it, it is, you mentioned intuition, like so much, like I know without knowing that my pH is, it's too acidic. Like the other day when I was making these, I had missed that one day of feeding. And when I put my starter in the water, it's, it sank. Mm-hmm. And that's when I said to myself, I just watched this guy on Gosney's website making these baguettes. And he, he always puts in instant yeast, a small percentage, yeah. with his sourdough. Yeah. So I was like, I'm definitely doing it because I don't know what's going on with my starter here. I don't like when it sinks. Yeah. What does it mean when it sinks? Um, you know, that's what people call the float test. 
where if you take your starter, you take a spoonful of starter and you drop a, a spoonful of it into a cup of water, if it floats, that generally means that the starter is ready to use in your baking. It means why? Why? Well, because it's basically showing you the relationship between the carbon dioxide that it's creating and the the point in time where that starter is before it starts to break down, meaning it's past its peak. So it, it's a kind of a cool test that tells you the yeast is strong enough to rise the dough and the protease enzyme hasn't done enough damage yet to sink the dough. Right. So it, it, it catches it right around that peak time. A lot of people, there's like a religious argument around whether the float test really works or not, because you can just stir up your starter real aggressively and, and make it sink, you know, because you knock the air bubbles out of it. So then people say, well, you can't rely on it because I can make a really strong starter sink if I want to. It takes a little bit of technique to use it. I, I use it and it's very accurate. I mean, I do it all the time, but it depends on your specific starter, how good you are at, at kind of scooping it out and not not blowing up all the the bubbles in it but if it floats it generally means it's ready it's like a it's like a one way test if it floats it's ready but if it doesn't float it might still be ready because you can make a strong starter sink by by kind of mishandling it but if it floats good to go that's my opinion are you not supposed to whip up your lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details starter when you put it in the water because i do oh no when you put it in the water no it doesn't damage the starter at all it, it just impacts whether it'll float or not in oh. that when you're doing the test no you can you can mix it with a power mixer i mean you can do anything actually stirring your starter actually helps it you know oh, when thank you, god because i've been doing it wrong <laughs> otherwise i was doing it wrong for three years no no because it, aer- it aerates it it moves the yeast around because the yeast grows in, in clusters so that so when you when you move it around a little bit it actually helps it, it helps it thrive a little bit the Proteus enzymes thrive on that. Yeah, the, pro- <laughs> the Proteus enzyme is back, yes. All right. Uh, very, very interesting stuff. Yeah. For more on that, check out Tom's video where he, I think you have about five different pH testers. Four, four pH testers, four. yes. Cool. Now, I know you've been spending a lot of time reading and reviewing books on your channels. I have, yeah. I got into this last year. Some people started, you know, writing sourdough books and I started buying them because I was interested and I started writing short book reviews on my website and on Instagram. And then people saw my reviews and they just started sending me books. So now I have a you know a large stack of books to review. But there there are four fantastic books that I've read recently. Two of them, interestingly, are the authors were both on your show. Yeah. Elaine Body. The Sourdough Whisperer, fantastic book, and Maurizio Leo, The Perfect Loaf. You had both of them on. Those are absolutely two of the best sourdough baking books ever written. And the interesting thing about them is, and this is maybe because of the pandemic, maybe not, is that all the sourdough books written prior to that, I won't say all, all the popular ones, were written by bakers. Chad Robertson, Richard Bertinet, uh, Ken Forkish, Jeffrey Hamelman, these were all like pro bakers who took their bakery experience and they basically turned that into, you know, a home baking method for sourdough. Maurizio and Elaine were home bakers. They, they learned at home and they taught thousands of people, home bakers, how to bake because they're both active on social media. So they wrote these books from a totally different perspective of the home baker who's not a professional baker working in a bakery. I mean, literally people who don't know anything, they buy a book and it's, it's more about, you know, troubleshooting and all the things that happen with home bakers and, and really trying to accelerate that learning curve of being a home baker where you're only baking one or two loaves a week, you know, or, or less, you don't get the experience like a, you know, a professional baker work, you know, baking a couple hundred loaves a, a day. So they wrote these books from a different, you know, point of view and it works because you know I participate on social media a lot as well, 
And I've seen this new kind of influx of home bakers who started in the last six months making sourdough, and they're using Elaine's and, and Maurizio's books, and they're baking better sourdough. I mean, they're just coming right out of the blocks baking fantastic loaves. I can see it. It's, it's incredible. I see it too. I, they, uh, I'm in a bunch of the Facebook groups and you'll see people say, oh, this is my first sourdough loaf. And they post yep. the picture and it looks like they've been doing it for 10 years. Totally. And that, that did not happen a year ago or two years ago. I'm telling you, they, they've made a material difference in that learning curve for home bakers. And the other thing I love about Elaine and and Maurizio is, you know, because you interviewed them, they have two totally different styles. I mean, you couldn't find two more different approaches to sourdough baking. I mean, Elaine is like, she's just like the most pragmatic, straight talking, like she, she's, she took all these complicated sourdough methods and just stripped them down to the bare bones, essential method. It's like straight down the middle, follow these steps. Don't worry about all the stuff around the edges. And she gets people to make consistently good loaves just by sticking to an incredibly simple process. Maurizio is kind of the other, other end of the spectrum where he, you know, he's a software engineer. So his, his book is you know, written from kind of an engineer's perspective where he's, he's really into the details of dough temperature and, and starter maintenance. And, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably, I gravitate more towards Maurizio's method but really into the details of the steps and the troubleshooting. But you need two books like that because there are different people have different personalities. I mean, I gravitate towards Elaine's method. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, it's, I I've talked about this a little bit before I stumble into the science. Yeah. I don't have the patience for the science. Yeah. But intuitively I, I, I know how it's supposed to feel. I know how it's supposed to smell at this point by doing all the steps. Yeah. Um, and I, I am getting the right, I am getting the Proteus enzymes to the right place without knowing yeah. all the science behind it. And Elaine has helped me. Yeah. Because, you know, after talking to Elaine and really focusing on the one main plain sourdough. Yeah. And then from there, once you get that down, creating variations on that or adding inclusions. Yeah. I used to have all these, for every different bread, I would have drastically different recipes because I researched them from different places. Yeah. And then I realized, let's take my rustic sourdough and then replace it with some rye flour, some whole wheat, throw some cranberries or the way Elaine says, chuck some cranberries, chuck some... You know, walnuts in there and see what you get, yep. you know, and play and just make variations on your, your hero yeah. loaf. Yeah, she, she's the master of that. I mean, all her recipes are all based off that master recipe that she, that she came up with. And then you just add this stuff in. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's great. I mean, yeah, she's, she's so talented at that. And, and Maurizio's recipes are interesting. In his book, he has 60 recipes. And what he's done is he's created the recipe for the sourdough version of everything you could imagine you'd want to make sourdough, uh, make out of sourdough. He has sourdough donuts, sourdough pretzels, flatbread, naan, tortillas, and then a hundred, you know, or dozens of types of, of, of bread where his is like the encyclopedia of, you know, possible uses of, of sourdough to make bread. So I like that as kind of the reference manual if I'm trying to make something a little out of the ordinary, I go, I go there to get kind of the, the starting point recipe for, you know, a sourdough, uh, hot pretzel or something like that. Something out of the ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I could make bread out of sourdough or instant yeast and I've done it. I, I know the conversion in my head. It's just a rising agent and it, you can make anything Either way, you're just choosing to use a different rising agent because it's accessible to you or for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, and then there's the debates on whether or not, especially in pizza, sourdough is better Mm. or, you know, instant yeast is just as good. You're, you know, getting into poolish with instant yeast, which produces 
very much the same results and the same smells in the pre-ferment. Um, you start to smell the acidity. It's so interesting I, stuff. I know you make a lot of pizzas in your home home pizza oven. What what do you use for your dough, sourdough or or yeast? Mostly yeast out of convenience. Yeah. And when we make the pizza on the truck, I think we're gonna do it with with yeast. Yeah. But you know, there I try to do twenty four to seventy two hour cold ferments on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that long of a ferment, even with the commercial yeast, you start to get some of the flavor profile of, of sourdough. Not, not quite exactly the same, but it heads in that direction. But, you know, there's a guy, uh, Dan Richer, who owns a pizzeria called Raza in Jersey City. He's, he's won Best Pizza in America by New York Times. Very well known. He's using, he's not doing sourdough, but he's doing Polish. Mm-hmm. He's letting th- that, uh, I think it's a one-to-one. No, that would be on sourdough. Well, the uh, pool, that's, that's like half and half, right? Where you get, yeah. you, you, so you get the flavor of the sourdough, but you let the commercial yeast do the work. Correct. Yeah. yeah. yeah it, actually, yeah, that's what it is. It's one-to-one with a dash of, uh, of instant yeast in there. Yeah. And you let that sit overnight and then yeah. you almost use it as a starter. Right. And it really makes it nice. Yeah, I've tried that a few times. Not with pizza, but I've made a couple other loaves like that. A couple other books I wanted to touch on that are really ac- exceptional. One is um, uh, out of France. There's an author named Thomas Teffrey Chambeland. He's like the top sourdough baker in France, and he wrote this book called Sourdough Baking, a Treatise. And th- this is the book. I mean, th- just the title got my attention. And when I read this thing, I'm like, this thing was right up my alley because it's all science. I mean, it's like he's the master sourdough bread baker in France, and he wrote this book. And everybody else who writes a book says, you know, this is my opinion on how you should feed your starter. He says, this is the science of how you should feed your starter. Any questions, you know? And then you go to the next thing, like people talk about how to shape the loaf. He's like, this is the science of how you shape a loaf, and this is the result that you get. So it's just like it takes all the mystery out of all these different methods that are out there. And it gives you kind of one provable starting point where you can say, okay, this isn't like, you know, an old wives tale passed down through generations. This is like actually starting with the science. Cause I mean, my style is I, I'm definitely, I definitely start with the science, but I, I want to get to the art. Like I, I use the science to get through the, all the possible variations so that you can do something special at the end. I don't want to waste my time, you know, screwing around with things that don't work. So I'm trying to find the best way to, you know, get a shot at a perfect loaf. You know, Maurizio calls his his book, The Perfect Loaf. Elaine, you know, says, if you think your loaf is perfect, it's perfect. Uh, (laughs) I, I believe that there's like this unattainable perfection of like the perfect shape and the perfect crumb and the perfect flavor. And I want to get there quicker. And for me, science is the path that gets you shots at that more quickly. Sure. Now, what does he say in his book about how to feed your starter? Um, he, he basically uh, uses this. Um, it's something I did in one of my early videos. Just, uh, uh, you know, I did it through intuition. It's called peak to peak feeding, where if you're trying to deacidify your starter, if your starter becomes acidic, you feed it and let it peak, and then as soon as it peaks, you you discard most of it. You wouldn't do this with your large quantity of starter. You'd start with a smaller quantity. You, you discard most of it, feed it again, wait for it to peak, knock it down again, feed it again. You do that three or four times, and basically it rebalances. It lets the yeast catch up to the lactic acid bacteria. And I've even tested this with the pH meters and show, shown how you can do that, and you can like massively knock down the acidity of your starter with three or four kind of rapid feedings. So you said you feed yours a few, you know, for a few days before you're going to use it, but you don't do big discarding. I do. I, I discard about 25% yeah. on, on Monday or Tuesday. Yeah. It should be Mondays. I discard 25%. Yeah. And then I, if I have the big bakes coming up, I add a third giant canister. To yeah. start building up enough starter, yeah, to use for my weekend bake. Yes, yeah, so you're doing a, a type of that. He would he would do more aggressive discarding. Really? Uh, 
Yeah. And I do that as well. Like if my starter is acidic, I'll, I'll discard 90%. I mean, I'll get it down to almost nothing. And, and my, my, my starter, like right now it is, because to be honest with you, I'm, I'm very slow because I'm in between things. Yeah. But if I'm baking every week, it doesn't, I don't think it has that much of an opportunity to get yeah, and very be, acidic. Because you keep yours in the refrigerator. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. That, so Immediately after feeding, I put it in. The, I don't even wait an hour. So, so for me, where I keep it on my countertop, like one day in my kitchen is like one week in your kitchen. Hundred percent. Yeah. So, but yeah, refrigerate refrigeration helps everything. Yeah. Yeah. My wife doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> she keeps wanting. I want it in the main area. Yeah. So I don't have to go far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the, one last book, which which I wanted to bring up, which is related to something you told me on the, the last time we talked, is this other um, book I recently read is from an, an author, Michael Calanti. He's a, he's a baker and a teacher and a bakery consultant in San Francisco. And he wrote a book called How to Bake More Bread in 2016. It's a relatively old book, but nobody, never heard anybody talk about this book. I mean, at least among the bakers that I kind of run with. And this book is spectacular because when you think back to, uh, you know, Chad Robertson wrote Tartine in 2010. And that kind of just everybody, all the home bakers like grab, gravitated towards Tartine, myself included. I mean, I love that book. It's spectacular. But every other book that's been written since then is kind of a derivation of Tartine. I mean, it's the stretch and folds and the, the shaping methods. I mean, some of them are, are just like a total ripoff of, of Chad Robertson's techniques. But almost every book is related to that. Then, then I find this book in 2016 from Michael Calanti. It's like he lived in, an, in a universe where tartine didn't exist. He, he studied bread baking in France, and then he took kind of the French techniques to commercial bakeries. And he just has a very different way of making sourdough, which is very similar to what you're doing. Keep your starter in the refrigerator. But the real breakthrough thing is he does this thing called two-stage bulk fermentation, which I think is what you do. He mixes the dough at a warm temperature for like three hours, lets it start to ferment, then puts it in the refrigerator for 24 hours, and you finish bulk fermentation in the fridge 24 hours later. And this is what a lot of commercial bakeries do, but, but no home bakers use that method. It is what I do. Yeah. And when you told me you did that a year ago, I'm like, that's crazy. How could that <laughs> work? And then I tried it, and I'm like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Not only because it makes great tasting bread because of the, the long, that longer cold fermentation time, but it just frees up your schedule. I mean, it just gives you unbelievable schedule flexibility because you're not standing around watching the dough rise. I mean, you just get it started and put it in the fridge. And if he says, take it out in 24 hours, once it's in the refrigerator, there's not a big difference between 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, maybe 32 hours. I mean, you got a huge window. So for busy people who are working, you know, busy jobs and they're trying to make sourdough, sourdough this has just opened up a huge opportunity for people because you can do it at night after work. You can get home from work, you know, mix the dough, get it into the, the refrigerator by say 10, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Then you forget about it till the next night. You get back home the next night, eight o'clock the next night, you take it out, you shape it, put it back in the fridge. Then you bake it any time in the next day or two. I don't, I don't even do it that way. I should write a book on my method, which is similar, but different. And I think even easier for the home baker but before I get to that, let me ask you, because I seem to remember you telling me that his, his initial three-hour bulk ferment is at 80 degrees. It is. Very warm. Yeah, if you want to do it in three hours, you have to, has to be warm. I'd say 78 to 82 degrees. I usually do it at 80. But how does a, a, an average person without a lot of equipment have a facility to bulk ferment? See, that's why I do it at 70 degrees for six hours. Yeah, well, mo most home bakers are doing, you know, one one to four loaves at a time. And that's where you can use these countertop warm proofers. Like there's that Broden Taylor proofer, that's what I use. Or you can use your oven with the light on. That's what I did for, for years. You just turn on the light in your oven, the light will throw off and heat. It'll get up to 85 degrees in there. So there, there are some or, people. Or you could, you could do what I do, which is just double the time. Yeah, go six hours. Yeah. But, but I can't do that after work. You know, that's, that's the difference where, where I, I look at it as a scheduling thing where it's like, I want that initial 
time before I get the dough into bulk fermentation to be as short as possible. So, you know, that it just, to me, a lot of these different techniques that I look at now are not so much about what's the best way to make sourdough. It's how do you make more sourdough when, when you're busy, you know, so yeah. to figure out the timing aspect of it. It's funny because I, I work, the other things I do to make money, I work out of home right now. And I've recently been asked if I was interested in going back on sets. And I said, no. Mm. And it, it could be because like, I kind of don't want to give up the control over the bread stuff. And, and I want to be able to do the bread stuff during the day and bounce around to phone calls yep. and not be absent for long periods of time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think I talked about this on the last podcast was the thing that I'm really focused on now is trying to, to get all the millions of people who learned how to bake sourdough during the pandemic to get them back into making sourdough because they all quit when they had to go back to work. And I mean, just so many people who I knew who all loved making sourdough, they just put it away and they don't do it anymore. And it makes, you know, makes them sad. It makes me sad. I mean, there's millions of people out there. So I've, over the last year, I've been working on this thing called the post-pandemic sourdough method, which, uh, I mean, I've, I've done hundreds of, of tests on this thing where basically, and I published it a couple months ago, I have a video on it and I have a, a, a 50 page paper on it. If you want to read about how to do it, you, you don't have to read all 50 pages, but basically I looked at sourdough baking, like as if I was an industrial engineer doing a, like a time and motion study and said, like, how can I take as much wasted time out of the process? So I have this method down where, let's say you, 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 you make dinner, you clean your kitchen, your kitchen's completely clean, you go in the living room and, you know, it's 7 o'clock and Wheel of Fortune's on, and I say, I'm going to go make sourdough. I go in the kitchen, and I have the steps down, take out the flour, measure the ingredients, mix it in a bowl, I use the slap and fold method, which I know you, you use as well. You do it to James Brown. I do it to uh, Janet Jackson. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 12 minutes of mixing. But then you got to wash the dishes. You got to put everything away. And, and I prepare all the materials for the next day. What am I going to need for shaping? What am I going to need for baking? I do that whole thing in 25 minutes. So I'm back in the living room for the... For Jeopardy. For, for the final quiz on, 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 on Wheel of Fortune and I'm ready for Jeopardy at 7.30 and my wife's like, I thought you were making sourdough. I'm like, I just did. I mean, it's 25 minutes, literally. Yeah. Uh, so, that, so that process is part of the, the method. But then the other thing I did was I, I ran 100 experiments last summer and fall where I tested the rising time using different amounts of starter and different temperatures. And I created these bulk fermentation timetables. So now I can say, I mixed my dough at seven o'clock. I got to leave for work the next morning by eight o'clock. So I, have, I need a 13 hour, or let's say a 12 and a half hour rise time. You go to these fermentation tables. I have it broken down to half hour increments. And it says to get a 12 and a half hour rise, you got to be at 71 degrees and use 20% starter. You mix that up. And then what I use is, we talked about these warm proofers. I have these little warm and cold proofers now. It's like a little mini fridge where you can dial in the thermometer, the temperature. And I say, I set it to 71 degrees. I mix the dough. I put it in the little mini fridge. I go to sleep. I wake up the next morning. It's perfectly bulk fermented at, at 7.30. I shape it, pre-shape, bench rest, final shape, put it in the fridge. I'm out the door at 8 o'clock. It works every time. So, so. Then, then I bake it any time. Bake it 12 hours later, 24 hours later, 36 hours later, once it's in the fridge. I mean, I've left them in there for three days. But, but the breakthrough is that time, control the timing. Because when you control the, the time by controlling the temperature, you make sourdough fit into your schedule. And you can, you, you can fit any schedule. You can do it on a 24-hour schedule, 18-hour schedule, 8 hours, 12 hours. I mean, and it's all, it's all math and science. You just look it up on the table, mix the dough, but you have to have the ability to control the temperature. But these, these little mini proofers are so inexpensive now. I think it's, it's the biggest thing. It's, it's a revolution in home sourdough baking, in my opinion, to get these little mini proofers that warm and cool 
with the fermentation tables because then you control time. So where do we get access to this table? It's on my website. It's, it's uh, under the tools section. It's called bulk fermentation timetables. And uh, I, right now I have them set up between 64 degrees and 74 degrees with all the increments in between. And then I'm running the test now to get it up to probably 80 degrees and then down to as low as 50 degrees. So, so it'll, you'll have a complete you know, window, either if you say I want to do it at my room temperature, what's the percentage of starter that I need to use? You could look it up that way. Or you could say if I mix 20% of my starter and I want it done in X number of hours, what temperature do I need to set it to? So it lets you control either of those variables. That's amazing. That's really helpful. I'm going to go check that out. I think I could use that. The future. You know, it, it does all come down to science. Yeah. Some of us like, and I'm being serious. I'm not trying to make a joke. Some of us just don't have the aptitude to, to sit there and figure out the science. And you figured it out for us. Exactly. You know? exactly what trying to do. Yep. That's I so, love, it's great. I love doing the research. I love doing the experiments. And then I like teaching people. You know, so it's a, it's a great, great fit for me. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. I learned a lot today. And uh, I look forward to having you on for a third time. But more importantly, I look forward to creating this band. If, <laughs> if there are other sourdough bakers that sing or play an instrument and want to join the Proteus Enzymes, please reach out to Tom or myself and we can start over Zoom. Sounds okay. good. All right. Work. Tom, good to hang. Thanks, Jim. This episode of Bread for the People was brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run business that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to iTunes and rate and review this episode. Reviewing and rating is the most effective way to help us grow our audience. This episode was produced by Milestone TV and Film. I'm your host, Jim Serpico. Blessed be the bread, everyone.